So now he's hunting her. There were about 12 people, as far as we know, in the laundromat at the time of the homicide. But what you're bringing up is what we call vicarious or secondary trauma. Y'all, you deserve professional hair color that makes you look your gorgeous best delivered right to your door. You can take your hair coloring at home to the next level with Madison Reed, and it starts at just $22. Women have had two options for coloring their hair for decades. That at-home color you got out of a box that's outdated or going to the time and expense of a traditional salon. Many clients of Madison Reed comment on how their new hair color has improved their lives. Women love their gorgeous, shiny, multidimensional, healthy-looking hair. This is game-changing color you can do at home. And you'll look like you just came out of the salon. Madison Reed color is unique because it's crafted by master colorists who blend nuances of light, dark, cool, and warm tones. And they create over 55 gorgeous, multidimensional shades. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Best case, worst case listeners get 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with code BESTCASE. That's code BESTCASE. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is Jim Clemente, retired FBI profiler, former New York City prosecutor and writer producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. With me today is... Hi everybody, it's Francie Hakes, former state and federal prosecutor. Jim, this is exciting. It's only the third time we have ever taken... Best case, worst case, live Live. on the road. That's right. And we have a very special guest with us today. Hi, I am Rebecca Malachar. I am a former Cuyahoga County prosecutor and currently a professor of criminal justice at Cuyahoga Community College. See, she can say Cuyahoga, Jim. She's really good at it. All I'm going to say is we are at Tri-C and we are in Cleveland, Ohio with an amazing live audience. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. We're really excited to talk to you today, Rebecca, about your career and maybe some important case that you might want to tell us about. So why don't you just give us first, give us a little bit of of your background. You said you were a former state prosecutor. Yes. Well, I began actually as an elementary school teacher. I taught sixth grade for a year, spent 12 years with the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office, My last four years were in the major trial division, which is rape and homicide. And in 2003, I came to Tri-C full-time to teach criminal justice. Well, that's fantastic. So Rebecca and I have something in common. She doesn't know this, but uh, I went to law school right here in Ohio at Ohio Northern University, and I did an externship in one of the local prosecutor's offices in Lima, Ohio, Jim would probably pronounce it Lima, but we know it's Lima, Ohio. Mm. And so my very first experience in any courtroom ever was as an externship right here in Ohio. So I have Ohio roots. That's wonderful. So we have that in common. So how long were you a prosecutor there? I was a prosecutor for almost 12 years. And a lot of those obviously were major felonies. Yes, they were. It was all felony and the last four were homicide and rape. Wow. A lot of bad experience. Serious stuff. Serious. Yeah. Well, do you want to talk to us today about a particular case you have in mind? You know, I was thinking about that, and I know you focus on best case or worst case. 
And to my mind, some of the very worst cases is when a victim has very good reason to fear his or her assailant, Mm. reaches out to the criminal justice system for help, but the system is ultimately unable to prevent a homicide. Okay, well, let's talk about this case. We're going to reveal it sort of slowly in in stages. So we're first going to ask you, where in your career were you when this case came to you? This case went to trial in spring of 1998. So I had been with the office for six years. I had been a prosecuting attorney for seven years. I had been second chair on many homicide cases, but this was my first homicide case in which I was lead prosecutor. And I was given one week notice. Can you tell our listeners what second chair means? Second chair means the prosecutor who is assigned to assist the lead prosecutor and works under the direction of that lead prosecutor. And in my experience, does all the hard work. That is true. (laughs) And then could you tell us what you were doing on the day that you first found out about this case? And you said it was one week notice, one week before trial? One week before trial. The trial was prepared and ready to go. A major trial prosecutor with whom I had worked in the past called me into his office said he needed to have surgery, and asked if I would take the case over. Wow. That's a lot for a murder case. Yes. And I had just, to give some background, I had been lead prosecutor on felonious assault, aggravated robbery, but never a homicide. Well, what's interesting is I think that all kinds of cases prepare you for a murder case. And in fact, in Georgia, for example, state prosecutors like to say that DUIs are actually the hardest cases to prosecute because there are so many statutory steps and so many technical issues with a DUI DUI case that it you might call it DWI here, but uh, driving under the influence case that it can be harder than a murder case to prosecute. But still, the stakes are different and the pressure you feel is different. And I agree, Francie. I think we call them OVI cases here in Ohio. I believe those are the most difficult. And actually, in terms of ease of prosecution, this case I'm about to describe probably falls into a best case scenario because as the attorney who assigned it to me said, you can't lose this case. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Oh, no, that's a death knell. That's the death knell. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. There is no guaranteed conviction, although there prosecutors certainly talk about it, but that's like a white whale. You know, it just doesn't exist. It really puts the heat on when someone right. says that. All right. Really so does. what did you first hear about this case? Well, this was a murder that occurred in the city of Cleveland in December of 1997. And what I heard is that the victim was a 26-year-old woman, daughter, sister, mother of a young child, mm. who had been stalked down and killed by an ex-boyfriend. Wow. That's a pretty emotionally charged case that. Yes, it was. And so here it is a week before trial. One of your trusted colleagues has asked you as a favor because of a health issue to take this case on. What are you feeling at this point? What's going through your brain? There wasn't time to be nervous. It was time to just start preparing. So I grabbed the case file, read everything I could. How big was the case file? Um, I want to say it was an expanding file that was about half a foot. 
Well, and that's a lot of material. And I think one of the common misconceptions that people like Jim have perpetrated on TV, no, I'm just kidding. Lots of cases that become the most famous, like Casey Anthony, OJ Simpson, drag on for months. Years and decades. Yeah. But in my experience, murder cases in the offices where I worked were up and down, as we call it, and go up and down in two or three days. It, was that your experience working homicides? I Yes. Most most homicide trials are over in less than a week. Yeah. Much less than a week. So did you think this one was going to be a long trial? No, I, I did not. And it was not. So you found out that the circumstances that this case was going to be based on, who were your witnesses? Well, may I tell what unfolded? Oh, of course. Sure. All right. What Jim, happened? you're getting ahead of I'm, you're getting ahead of our guest. I'm so sorry. He's so, from New York. Why don't you tell us what happened after you picked up the file and started reading through it? Well, ultimately, some of our most dramatic witnesses were unfortunate customers at a neighborhood laundromat. So one of the first things I did was call the two homicide detectives on the case to go out and visit the crime scene. When I interviewed witnesses, what I learned was that the victim had dated, the year before had dated her murderer, Mm. broken up with him, and was being stalked by him. She had filed multiple police reports on telephone harassment and stalking. Well, this is uh, unfortunately a very sad reality. Sometimes it's very difficult to understand how motivated a stalker might be to commit violent acts or murder against the person they're stalking. On the one hand, they profess love and adoration of the person. On the other hand, they have the intent to take away that person's life. It's really dichotomous. And in this case, the murderer ultimately thought that his victim was cheating on him. He did not see himself as a stalker. He thought that she was cheating on him and was using him. But they're no longer in a relationship. That is correct. So you can see how this could be an irrational thought process on the part of the offender. Very much so. And I bet in your uh, six years, I think you said, is is in major felonies, homicides and rapes? Well, at, at the time of this trial, I had been a prosecutor for six years. Ultimately, I spent four years in the major trial unit. I was not in that unit at this time. So, but in four years, I'm sure you saw a lot of murder cases that were similar, where you're talking about a domestic situation. Yes. And in the major trial unit, I was the only woman for quite a while. And for not quite rational reasons, my supervisor tended to give me every domestic violence homicide. Been there. Yes. So you get the, you, you tell the detectives you want to go and visit the crime scene. What happens? So we visited the laundromat. And unfortunately, this foretells what the crime eventually revealed. But as we were walking around the laundromat and they were telling me about the crime, months after the crime, I looked under a vending machine and unfortunately saw a piece of the victim's skull that they had not cleaned up with hair still attached. Oh, God. Well, you know, that kind of tells me that the crime scene work in this case probably wasn't perfect. Well, the cleanup work was not perfect. But it was an extremely gruesome crime scene. Mm. Oh. Okay, so you found horrific evidence at the crime scene months later. What did you do? Well, I, I went through the file and I began to interview witnesses. And what I learned is that after months and months of stalking, the murderer 
finally tracked down his victim. She had just walked her young daughter to school and was walking home. He pulled up in a pickup truck with a sawed-off shotgun and first shot her in the right arm, in her upper right arm. The um, medical examiner ultimately said that she would have survived that injury. It would have been grievous damage to her arm, but she would have survived. She actually managed to walk up her street to the corner and into a neighborhood laundromat. And some of our witnesses were neighbors who heard the shotgun blast, the first shotgun blast, Mm. and looked out their window. What they saw was the offender calmly walking up the street after his victim, carrying the sawed-off shotgun in plain view. And this was 930 in the morning in his right hand. Mm. So now he's hunting her. He's hunting her. So this has changed from a legal standpoint, potentially, with respect to what he could be charged with. You might have been able to argue, I'm not saying you could, but you might have been able to argue that the first shot was some sort of crime of passion, that it was a a lower homicide uh, standard. I wouldn't have argued that, but maybe you could have. But now that he's actually hunting her, you've got premeditation all day long. Yes, you do. And- The young woman ran into the laundromat, which, as you can imagine, was full of horrified customers in the middle of the morning just doing their laundry. She ran to the back wall of the laundromat and began to scream for help. The defendant followed her in, walked up right in front of her, cocked the shotgun again, and shot her in the head. And it removed the top of her head. Horrifying injuries. Horrifying. Horrifying for you, horrifying for detectives, horrifying for the jury. Let's just take a moment here to talk about what that was like for the witnesses in the laundromat. Unbelievable. There were about 12 people, as far as we know, in the laundromat at the time of the homicide. About six of them had the forbearance to stick around and report what they'd seen. The rest understandably fled. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's what's really dangerous about this offender to me is that he walks into a laundromat full of people and does not hesitate to blow her head off in front of witnesses. He is determined to kill her no matter the consequences. And it turns out he thought he was justified. Right. Well, so, we'll get to that in a minute. But I assume that she was pronounced dead on the I, scene. She was dead on the scene. The offender calmly walked out of the laundromat and down the street. And understandably, the witnesses were calling 911, but were afraid to pursue him. Mm -hmm. He walked back down the street, picked up her purse, put it in his truck, because she had dropped her purse while running, and made it to the next corner before he saw a patrol car responding to the homicide. He actually flagged down the patrol car and said, I'm the one you're looking for. Wow. Well, that's pretty bizarre, but not so bizarre once, like you said, Francie, once you look at the fact that he literally walked into a crowded laundromat and committed first degree murder right in front of a dozen witnesses. Correct. Now I'm starting to see why your colleague said fish in a barrel. Hiring is challenging. 
But there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses can connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash best case, B-E-S-T-C-A-S-E, ZipRecruiter.com slash best case. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I want to get back to these images that were obviously taken of the crime scene. I mean, you had to actually look at these pictures. You had to study them. Yes. What did that do to you? How did that affect you? It was the most gruesome crime scene I've ever seen. And I am very thankful that I didn't have to be at the actual scene because the pictures were bad enough. Yeah. One of the things we had to be very careful of preparing for trial was sorting through the pictures. As you both know, the jury does not need to see everything and they should not see everything. And can you explain a little bit about why that is? Why would a jury not have to see everything? As prosecutors, we do not want to create anything that might be reversible error that an appellate court might rule unfairly prejudice the jury. On the other hand, I have always personally felt that we don't need to abuse our jurors. They are doing their civic duty. It's an important job, but they're human beings. And finally, we don't want to further dehumanize the victim. This was a young woman, and no one needs to see her in that state beyond what's necessary. You know, those are great points. I mean, certainly when I tried as a federal prosecutor, lots of child pornography cases, and that was one of the dilemmas that we faced was how much of that evidence does the jury need to see in order to establish the element of the crime? Because a jury in federal court has to decide that it is, in fact, a real child and that it is, in fact, an image of sexual abuse and that the offender, obviously, the defendant is the one committing it. But, you know, when someone has... A million images. Do you show the jury a million images? Obviously, we didn't. We always showed them a representative sample. But there is always that dilemma. But what Jim and I always promise our listeners is to take them behind police lines. So to see what it is you're experiencing and how these kinds of horrific cases affect you. And what our listeners can't see, although the audience can, is you are holding yourself so tight that I can see that the memories of this case impact you dramatically. So can you talk a little bit about, I know this is hard, but can you talk a little bit about how you can look at what you looked at, you can see what you saw, and you can still stand in front of a jury and make an intelligible argument? Because just thinking about those pictures makes me want to cry. What do you guys think, right? Well, as you know, what we have to do is compartmentalize. You have to take yourself away from it. 
And that's another reason for sorting out only what is representative of the crime scene. But you're right. When I think of the raw crime scene photos, I do. I, it takes me back. We're, they were really images of a person who no longer had anything from the eyes up. And there were pieces of brain tissue, skull, and hair spattered over most of the laundromat. Underneath vending machines, on folding tables, on laundry, it, it was horrific. And then there was the injury to her arm, which had torn the leather jacket and shirt she was wearing underneath that. And you saw raw muscle and bone. So just a horrifying case all around. Absolutely horrifying. And how do you get past it? Because you haven't forgotten it. I guarantee you, as you're sitting here talking about it, because I'm look, thinking about the pictures in my mind, I've never seen them. You're seeing them right now, I guarantee it. Well, you get past it because you want to see the person who did this brought to justice as much as we can do that. I don't believe there is ever true closure for a homicide victim's family, but you want to do what you can. And this case got even more bizarre. So I just focused on that and worked on putting the case together and presenting the case to the jury. Jim, I think she needs to join XG Productions. Do you, you did you hear what she just did? The case got even more bizarre. That's called a teaser. <laughs> I Very heard dramatic. that. But, I, but what you're bringing up is what we call vicarious or secondary trauma. And this is something that people who work in these professions, these law enforcement and health and medical and mental health professions, have to deal with all the time because people only come in front of us if there's something horrible that happened to them. And it's, it's really a difficult thing, but you know, I'm going to say right now, thank you for putting up with what you had to put up with and making the hard decisions and, and going forward with the case. So now that you've seen the crime scene and you've seen these horrible images and you've talked to the witnesses about how coldly and calculatedly this man murdered this victim, what did you do? Well, I, I interviewed the patrol officers who he flagged down and then worked with the homicide detectives. And what I learned is that when he flagged down the patrol officers, said, I'm the one you've been looking for, he led them to where he had stowed the sawed-off shotgun. He had taken the time to put it under the porch of an abandoned home nearby. And he was then taken to the homicide unit given his Miranda warnings, and he proceeded to tell the homicide detective that he wanted to explain why he did this. So he waived his Miranda warnings. Mm. And this is where it gets more bizarre. Did they record this by any chance? At that time, they were not doing audio recordings. I have Darn to, it. I, and you see me smiling because at that time, the Cleveland Police Homicide Unit was sitting with an IBM Selectric typewriter actually typing out the interview and then giving the suspect uh, at his, his type statement and giving them a chance to review it, make corrections. Wow. So that's what we had. Got it. Okay. And how did that go? He said that his victim had been using him and dating him on and off, and he was getting increasingly angry and he didn't know what to do about it. He said that he had started attending church in recent months in an attempt to deal with it, 
And that at a recent church service, the pastor had started reading for the, from the Bible and something struck a chord. Oh no. Wasn't love thy neighbor. No, it was Ecclesiastes. And I don't think Solomon meant this, but he said to everything, there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. And I don't think that's what was it Pete Seeger or the birds meant either when they, um, it really was chilling because I've always taken that to be one of the most beautiful and comforting passages in the Bible. But he explained that he decided that was telling him that the way to solve his problem with the victim and the way to deal with his anger was to kill her. I'm smelling a mental defense. What about you, Jim? Yeah, probably. But also what I'm smelling is the fact that people will justify and rationalize their behaviors and they'll see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear and interpret it in their own way. But he clearly made a deliberate decision to take her life. Yes, it was. Wanted to justify it based on this very nonviolent Bible passage. Yes. And he wanted a trial. He was charged with aggravated murder, which in Ohio is the purposeful killing of another with prior calculation and design. So that's what we would call first degree premeditated murder. In the South, we just call it malice murder. I like that. That sounds creepy. It does. And it is. Yeah. Yeah. So I asked his attorney, why does your client want to go to trial? What does he hope to achieve? He actually was not claiming an insanity defense. He resisted a psychiatric evaluation. The court ordered one to protect the record. He did not want to waive his speedy trial. So this went to trial quite quickly. And his theory was that he wanted the court to instruct the jury on a lesser offense called voluntary manslaughter. Mm. So he's thought about this. He thought he thought it through. He wants to tell a jury what a wicked, wicked woman she was. That's what he wants to do. He, he did. Because in the state of Ohio, voluntary manslaughter is the knowing killing of another. But it is when the offender is provoked into an uncontrollable rage or fit of passion based on serious provocation by the victim. Which is normally like a bar fight. Or, or walking in on someone molesting your child. Or but, cheating on your on you in your own bed kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, not this. No. Well, especially since, as you very clearly detailed earlier, he shot her and she ran away and he calmly walked up the street, pursued her into a, a very public place. And even though she was not in any way doing anything that could have been provoking him, he then cold-bloodedly killed her. And I bet part of your closing argument emphasized his hiding the weapon. Okay, who's jumping ahead? I can't help it. I always do this. On our guest there? Absolutely. It was part of it was was hiding the weapon, planning who carries a sawed-off shotgun. This was obviously premeditated. He, He knew her route from her daughter's school to her home. He knew what time to find her. He, he stalked her down. He, there was a long record of the complaints of stalking. He, he shot her once. He calmly followed her. He hid the weapon. He picked up her purse. 
And, and so there was so much evidence of premeditation, of prior calculation and design. Well, so I'm interested in the trial, obviously. Did he testify? He did not testify. He did testify. I hated it when the defendants did not take the stand. I awful. wanted my shot at them. The Perry Mason moment, which, by the way, isn't true, never happens. But I wanted to go for it anyway. I always wanted to get up there and yell at the defendant. Are you surprised by that, Jim? Is anybody surprised by that? <clears throat> no, but you're right. The defendant almost never testifies. In this case, he had prior felony convictions. No surprise. And as you know, if he had testified, those would have come out before the jury. So tell us what the trial was like in thumbnail. It was really, in summary, simply the facts we've discussed today. It was very clear cut. His defense attorneys, he had a very good team of defense attorneys, tried to make their case through closing argument. Obviously, the judge refused to instruct the jury on the voluntary manslaughter charge. But the defense attorneys claimed that she had called him and asked for a ride that day and that they had gotten into an argument. But it, it just, there really was no argument. It was a quick trial. It was from a prosecutor's perspective, it was a best case. Mm -hmm. Because it was easy. It was interesting. We had a very, very strong case. And the jury, the only thing that was a little strange is that we expected a very quick verdict. Sure. You would think it would take the jury less than an hour to go into the jury room, pick a four-person, discuss the case, and have the 12 jurors sign the verdict form. But the jury deliberations actually dragged on for about five hours. See, that's just that's just such torture for the prosecutor sitting there, especially if, I don't know what your law is in Ohio, but in, in federal court, we always got the last argument. In state court, we only got the last argument if the defendant put up no evidence. But generally, you get the last argument. And so you always feel like, I told them what to do. What are they waiting for? But five hours is yeah, a lot better five than hours. five days yes. or five weeks. True. And so five hours, the jury comes back in. What do they say? They said guilty of aggravated murder. And in Ohio, we do get the last argument as the prosecutors. And I was really debating because you never want to terrorize a jury. So I was really debating in our final rebuttal prosecution's closing argument whether to rack the shotgun and show the jury what the people in the laundromat and what the last moments for that victim were. And I thought, you know, I have to do this. And I'm so glad I did. Because one thing I always like to do when a verdict comes in. Is pull the jury? Is pulling the jury and then asking the judge if he would keep the jurors around if they were willing to talk about their deliberations. Absolutely. Yeah. Because you learned, learned so much. Learned so much. So what did you find out from the jury? I, I In a very polite way, I went in and said, what took you so long? <laughs> I would have too. <laughs> what took you? What took you five hours? And and sometimes you just don't you don't want to know how the sausage is made. And I really this this horrifies me to this day. No disrespect to the men and women of that jury, but they said, "Well, we decided on the murder right away. We knew he was guilty of murder because it definitely was an intentional killing." But we just weren't sure about the premeditation or prior calculation and design. And I said, well, why? He, he, he put a sawed-off shotgun into his truck. He stalked his victim down. There was a 
pattern of stalking. He shot her in the arm and then followed her up the street. He had this whole theory about the Bible verses. And she deserved it. Yeah. And she deserved it. So what finally convinced you about prior calculation and design? And they said, well, it was when you racked that <sighs> shotgun in closing argument, it demonstrated to us that he needed to take a physical action to enable a second fire. They and, created a new element of the crime that doesn't exist. And, and that was the that was the planning or prior calculation and design. Wow. So sometimes you really yeah, don't want to know. know. No. Yeah, you don't well, want to know. We've yeah. all been in cases because we've all been prosecutors here where the jury has said some really, really bizarre things. Yes. But I'm very happy that they did come to the right conclusion. And I'm really happy that you know, you've been able to tell us about it and wait, our wait, I want to audience. Know what, I want to know his sentence. Okay. What was the penalty? So in Ohio for um, aggravated murder, there were no death penalty specifications on this. So the sentence for aggravated murder is 20 years to life. It's an indefinite sentence with release date to be determined by the parole board. There was an additional three years consecutive for the use of a firearm and then he had consecutive sentences for unlawful possession of a dangerous ordinance, which is a sawed-off shotgun in the state of Ohio, and having a weapon while under disability because of his prior convictions. So hopefully he'll never get out. He will never get out of prison. Good. Oh, that's great. Well, and just the last comment we'd like to know, how do you classify this case as a best case or a worst case for yourself? Both. It, it is a worst case because I think it's an ultimate breakdown of the criminal justice system that we weren't able to protect the victim. She she reached out for help and there was, in some cases, there's nothing we can do to prevent someone who is bent on harming another person. Right. But it's a best case because, as you know, as prosecutors, you rarely, rarely get a case that is really like shooting fish in a barrel. So true. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca, for coming in and telling us about this best and worst case in your career. We really appreciate it. I'm sure our audience will appreciate it as well. And thank you, the people of Cleveland and Tri-C, for coming in. Thank you. Until next time, thank you for listening to Best Case, Worst Case. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Mike Thal. Music composed and performed by Simba Sumba. And hosted by Wonder. You can listen to Best Case, Worst Case on your favorite listening app. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Stories about child sexual abuse can make us feel powerless, but the good news is that there are organizations working to prevent abuse and keep kids safe. Darkness to Light and their Stewards of Children Prevention Training has trained more than 1.4 million adults to protect, recognize, and react responsibly to child sexual abuse. But there's more work to do, and with their 4 million by 2020 goal, Darkness to Light is setting their sights on training 4 million adults around the country to keep kids safe. 
By donating to Darkness to Light, you can help reach this goal that will make communities across the country safer places for kids. It starts with you. Visit www.d2l.org today to give. That's www.d2l.org. Ooh, I can't.